Imagine a ferry brings you from Lewis, Delaware to North Cape May, New Jersey. You drive east on Lincoln Boulevard for four miles before merging onto the Garden State Parkway in Cape May. You travel north on the parkway for 37 miles, passing Wildwood, Stone Harbor, Sea Isle City, Ocean City, and Summers Point. After you pass Egg Harbor Township, you take exit 38B to merge onto the Atlantic City Expressway near Atlantic City International Airport. You then travel northwest on the expressway for 44 miles, passing Egg Harbor City, Hamilton, Sicklerville, Washington Township, and Deptford. Just before reaching the Delaware River, you take exit 1B to merge onto Interstate 295 near Belmar. Then, you travel northeast on I-95 for 18 miles, passing Haddonfield, Cherry Hill, Moorestown, Mount Laurel Township, and Willingboro. After crossing Rancocas Creek, you bear right to take exit 45AB toward Mount Holly. This exit takes you onto Rancocas Road in Westhampton Township. As you travel east on Rancocas Road, you pass the Garden State Council of the Boy Scouts of America, Westhampton Middle School, Rancocas State Park, Tomino's Towing, and the Rancocas Nature Center. Then, after almost two miles on Rancocas Road, you turn right onto Blue Jay Hill Road. Immediately to your right lies your destination, a scenic 50-acre clearing adorned with historical markers detailing the history of the area. On the surface, it may not seem that interesting. Today, this area is sparsely populated by a few landowning families. But what you may not know is that, almost 200 years ago, this area was a thriving community of African Americans, and the journey from Cape May that you just made parallels the final leg of the Underground Railroad traveled by many escaped slaves. This is the story of the village of Timbuktu. The state of New Jersey has a long, dark, and complicated history with the institution of slavery. The first African slaves were imported to New Netherland by the Dutch West India Company to work as farmers and fur traders in present-day Bergen, New Jersey. Under Dutch rule, slaves were permitted to sign legal documents, bring civil action against whites, and become members of the Dutch Reformed Church. In 1664, New Netherland fell to the British, and those enslaved by the Dutch West India Company were freed as the company was forced out. However, slavery in the new colony of New Jersey soon got significantly worse under the British. The first British-owned slaves in New Jersey were reportedly brought to Shrewsbury by Colonel Lewis Morris. In 1704, the first slave codes in New Jersey were implemented, which prevented slaves, as well as free blacks, from owning property or congregating in large groups. New Jersey's economy became dependent on slavery. In South Jersey, part of the breadbasket of British America, slaves worked on farms producing food for colonists. In North Jersey, slaves were forced to man shipyards across from New York Harbor. During the American Revolution, as many as 10,000 slaves from New Jersey fled to New York, where British forces granted them their freedom in exchange for joining the war effort against the Continental Army. Following the British loss of the war, these freedmen were evacuated to other British territories such as Nova Scotia and Jamaica. 
1804, slavery was officially abolished, but slaves born before 1804 remained, quote, apprenticed for life as indentured servants to their masters. Ultimately, New Jersey was the final northern state to abolish slavery, as the practice didn't truly end until the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865. Some slaves continued to refuse to leave the homes they had lived in for their entire lives, and in 1875, Jack Jackson, widely believed to be the last slave in New Jersey, died at his master's farm in Secaucus. In 2008, the New Jersey legislature passed a resolution officially apologizing for the state's role in the slave trade, which was signed into law by Governor John Corzine. In spite of this dark past, New Jersey can still pride itself on being a safe haven for escaped southern slaves. There was even sizable community of freedmen formed in New Jersey called the Village of Timbuktu. I'm going to tell you all about it right now on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 45th episode of this podcast, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara and Tom. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing. Make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. In 1824, four enslaved African Americans, David Parker, Ezekiel Parker, Wardell Parker, and Hezekiah Hall, escaped from their plantation in rural Maryland and fled to New Jersey. As they were born outside of New Jersey, they would be grandfathered into the state's 1804 partial abolition of the practice. However, under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, the group could still be captured and returned to Maryland. They needed a safe harbor to protect themselves from slave catchers, so they decided to purchase a plot of land to start their own community. There was just one problem. Nobody would sell land to black freedmen, let alone fugitive slaves, with one exception. The Religious Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers, are a Protestant denomination well known for aiding freedmen and escaped slaves in the antebellum era. Back during this time, the Quaker presence in New Jersey was strongest within the Philadelphia metropolitan area, also known as the Delaware Valley. The group of escaped slaves decided that the Quakers were their best bet for assistance, and they traveled to Burlington County, an area within the Delaware Valley with a prominent Quaker influence. There, they each purchased various amounts of land from Quaker businessman William Hilliard. David Parker bought one acre for $15.40, Ezekiel Parker bought 1.4 acres for $22.16, Wardell Parker bought 1.5 acres for $24.05, and Hezekiah Hall bought half an acre for $8.33. 
Eventually, more freedmen and escaped slaves migrated to this area of land, and it eventually reached a size of 50 acres. In 1830, the area was incorporated as a village. The residents of the village decided to name it Timbuktu after the African city of Timbuktu, which was well known for its prosperity as the capital of the Mali Empire. Timbuktu quickly became a very prosperous village, and its residents began developing the community. Its proximity to the Delaware River also made it a major hub on the Underground Railroad, both as a final destination for escaped slaves and as a temporary rest stop for those fleeing to Canada. In the early 1830s, more land was purchased for the purpose of creating a school for black children. On January 4, 1834, the African Union School was established for the children of Timbuktu. Twenty years later, on May 2, 1854, the Zion Wesleyan Methodist Episcopal Church of Timbuktu was established. This church, in addition to serving the residents of Timbuktu, drew in both black and white worshippers from surrounding towns. By this time, Timbuktu had reached a peak population of about 600. Although some residents were escaped slaves, most were black freedmen who were either born free or had been manumitted through legal means. In addition, small numbers of Native Americans, as well as Irish and German immigrants, also lived in Timbuktu. Unfortunately, with more fame came more targeting by slave catchers. In 1850, a more stringent version of the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, which stated that any citizen who offered food or shelter to a fugitive slave or any law enforcement officer who refused to arrest a fugitive slave was liable to a fine of $1,000. With this new law in place, Timbuktu became the target of a ruthless slave catcher from Philadelphia named George Alberti. Alberti was notorious for his involvement in the 1851 kidnapping of two free black women from their home in Philadelphia, and in 1860, he sought to capture escaped Maryland slave Perry Simmons, who had been living in Timbuktu with his wife and four children for over a decade. When word of Alberti's plan spread around Timbuktu, the villagers decided that Simmons wouldn't be taken without a fight. At 8.30 p.m. on December 1, 1860, George Alberti set off from Camden, New Jersey, accompanied by his black indentured servant, a U.S. Deputy Marshal, and six others, to go capture Perry Simmons in Timbuktu. At around 10 p.m., they were joined by a Moorestown police constable, who was falsely told that the group was only going after a chicken thief with an arrest warrant, not a fugitive slave. One hour later, they arrived at the home of Alan Fenimore, Perry Simmons' employer with whom Simmons and his family lived in the outskirts of Timbuktu. Upon reaching Fenimore's home, the Moorestown police constable learned that he had been conned by Alberti. He then stated that he wanted no part in the capture of an escaped slave and returned to Moorestown on foot. In his words, quote, It was a long walk, 
but I considered it infinitely more pleasant than to remain and assist such a man as George Alberti in carrying off an innocent Negro and his family. In spite of the constable's desertion, Alberti continued with the plan. Little did Alberti and his band of slave catchers know, Fenimore and Simmons had prepared for this moment, and they retreated to Fenimore's attic, where they had prepared two loaded guns and an axe. Alberti shouted up the spiral staircase, ordering Simmons to surrender. Simmons, in turn, stood at the top of the staircase, threatening to shoot the first man to come up the stairs. Alberti started walking up the stairs, but after he saw the tip of Simmons' musket, he and his men fled outside. The group then set up camp outside of Fenimore's house, blocking anyone from entering or exiting. Meanwhile, Simmons and Fenimore spent the rest of the night and the next early morning shouting for help, hoping that fellow villagers would help them. At approximately 6 a.m., Fenimore's son was returning from the local stables when he heard the pleas for help. He then rode on horseback to the center of Timbuktu and rang the alarm bell. Within minutes, hundreds of armed villagers from Timbuktu swarmed Alberti's party. By sunrise, in what was known as the Battle of Pine Swamp, the villagers were able to drive off the group of slave catchers. Unfortunately, this was not the final time that Alberti attempted to capture Perry Simmons and his family. Two years later, Alberti returned to Timbuktu, and Simmons had to flee to a local barn in the middle of the night to evade capture. Simmons was once again victorious, but unfortunately, the cold weather that night took a major toll on his body. Simmons eventually contracted pneumonia, and he died on February 13, 1862, aged approximately between 45 and 50 years old. As for George Alberti, he was eventually convicted of kidnapping after capturing the 14-month-old daughter of a fugitive slave in Philadelphia. However, Alberti served less than a year in prison before he was pardoned by Pennsylvania Governor William Bigler. He died a free man in 1869. Meanwhile, dozens of men from Timbuktu went on to serve in the United States Colored Troops during the Civil War. Many of these soldiers, as well as a few civilians, were buried in the cemetery of the Zion Wesleyan Methodist Episcopal Church of Timbuktu. This cemetery is one of the few surviving reminders of what Timbuktu once was. Although there were once as many as 79 gravestones in the cemetery, today there are only 11 left. It is unknown when Timbuktu's decline began, but the final death notice in the village's archives was that of 80-year-old Joseph Giles, who died on May 4, 1938. Today, Timbuktu is an unincorporated community inhabited by only a handful of landowning families. However, even though Timbuktu has declined from what it once was, it continues to be a powerful memory of African American prosperity and self-determination, even in the worst of circumstances. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. 
I always try to get at least one New Jersey reference into every episode, but this week I decided to make the entire episode a New Jersey reference. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash Historia Obscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.